0: The show that lifts the voice of love from orgasms to superpowers and everything in between. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sex, Love and Superpowers podcast show. I am your host, Tatiana Berende, and today I have a very special guest with me, Brooke Axtell. And we are going to be discussing women empowering women after sex trafficking. Let me tell you a little bit about Brooke before we get started. Brooke Axtell is the founder and director of She is Rising a healing community for survivors of gender violence and sex trafficking. Her work as a human rights activist led her to speak at the 2015 Grammy Awards, the United Nations, and the U.S. Institute for Peace. She's been featured in many media outlets, including the New York Times, LA Times, Rolling Stone, Time Magazine, Wall Street Journal, the Steve Harvey Show, and CNN. She's an award-winning performance poet, singer-songwriter, and the author of the memoir, Beautiful Justice. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Brooke.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today.
0: Mm -hmm. So before we dive in, will you tell our listeners what your superpowers are? Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, One of my superpowers is my creative resilience. I've had the opportunity to face many challenges in my life and through those challenges, I've found a deep well of strength and creativity. I believe that trauma and loss and the grief that we face in life is an entry point into knowledge. And all of that knowledge is a form of power that we can bring into the world to make it a more compassionate place. So I see that, that creative resilience and that capacity for for alchemy as, as one of my, my superpowers.
0: Mm, yeah. I love how you called it alchemy. Cause I really do believe that is, that is the truth of, of that process when we really give ourselves over to it. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I would love for you to share with our listeners about uh, this organization, this com- healing community that you have founded called She Is Rising.
1: I would love to. I, I founded She Is Rising because I believe in the unconditional worth of women and girls. And I have seen the way that violence, all forms of gender-based violence from sexual assault to domestic violence to sex trafficking communicates the, the message that our, our voices and, and our desires don't matter. And I wanted to create a community where I could hold a vision for women and girls in recovery that moves beyond just survival into leadership and encouraging women and girls to really see themselves as the artists of their own lives, as change, as creators, and to move beyond a traditional social service model so that over long-term recovery and healing, that we could really tap into and celebrate the unique gifts and passions that women and girls have, and to support them in fully expressing those gifts in their long-term recovery. I felt um, like there was no, so, oh, I was just going to say I felt like there were so many agencies that were really focused on the crisis phase, and mm-hmm. although we, we do need that crisis, Response in terms of uh, direct intervention and uh, shelter, I felt like there was a, a piece of the conversation that was desperately missing, which is really holding a higher vision for our leadership in the world.
0: Yeah. And for, for the possibility for that alchemy and that transformation that you spoke to just a minute ago. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something when we stay in, in, in crisis response, it, we, can, we can keep people stuck there.
1: Yes, I I think you know one of the things that that I encountered, which was so painful, was that I was seeing both for myself and my own recovery, and and for my community, there was this narrative of survivors being so traumatized that the the story was that you know we were sort of desperately broken, and that you know maybe one day if we tried hard enough, we might have some semblance of a normal life. And I really wanted to challenge that notion that we were somehow fundamentally broken. I wanted to be able to hold a vision for our inherent resilience and wholeness. And I think trauma disrupts our, our connection sometimes to that, that truth of our inherent wholeness, but I, I believe we can reconnect with that and remember that. And I wanted to move beyond that story of, of brokenness and victimization and survival to what it means for us to thrive.
0: I yes, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I'm um just so much yes, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it and um and with the gratitude that I have for you in the world and and for the importance of speaking that message. Um what are what do you see as the difference like what are from a very practical boots on the ground um mm application you know what are what are the ways that she is rising is different from traditional organizations i mean you've shared with us the philosophy and 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 how how do you actually go from an experience like that to understanding your own wholeness and your resilience
1: Mm -hmm. i think the, the pragmatic piece is just beginning the conversations with survivors from a standpoint of always looking for what is what is the strength here? Where is the resilience? What is, what is the passion that this person has? Even if they've just emerged from sex trafficking, for instance, if I'm meeting with a young woman for the first time and we're sitting down for coffee, I, I don't ask her to tell me about her trauma. I know that she will share pieces of that with me when she's ready. What I'm more curious about is what does she desire? What is her vision for her life? What, what lights her up? what are the things that she would love to explore? Because I think if I can reflect back to her, the authentic pieces of her identity and to help her remember that she is not the story of her trauma, that she's the storyteller and that she gets to decide the kind of woman she wants to be in the world and the story she's going to tell about her life. Then by doing that, I'm essentially setting the tone for a a different way of engaging with recovery. So as she's navigating services, as she's, Looking at what she might want to do to, to build a new life, she's approaching it from a, a different vantage point. Everything is then seen through through the lens of how do I want to bring my voice into the world? How do I want to step into leadership? And so, you know, in a concrete sense, I'm very much I'm listening from the very beginning for those, those signs of what is what lights her up. How does she want to express her creativity? And then what are the practical gifts that I can give through resources, through mentoring, through leadership opportunities to help her live that out? And so really tailoring the entire response around the resilience and the strength rather than fixating on the details of the trauma. And what I found is that over time, the pieces of the trauma that need to be, surfaced and need to be highlighted and healed will come and then i will match her with whatever she needs to process that but i think if we we fundamentally view people and treat people as if they're victims and as if they're broken and they need to be saved and rescued then we're really missing the mark because we're essentially dehumanizing people and when someone has come out of this this violence, which is inherently dehumanizing, we need to be really mindful of the fact that our response is not also replicating that dehumanization. So if I know that you've been through a certain kind of trauma and I fixate on that and I make our conversation about that to the exclusion of all these gifts and passions, then I'm not actually going to be able to concretely build out a response that's based on your full humanity. And so, I mean, just in pragmatic terms... You know, sometimes that just looks like, as as I'm listening, as I'm asking questions, that I'm matching young women with the exact kind of mentorship they need to develop their their gifts and passions, creating uh, economic opportunity, work opportunity, educational uh, educational resources, whatever it is that's going to help her build that out. You know, I don't have a set program that every single person goes through because. I feel like it's so important for her to clearly define for herself and articulate what her, her vision of a beautiful life looks like. And so then I get to to come alongside her and, and help build that out. And, you know, even in retreats where I'm working in groups, you know, I'm always trying to bring in different experiential opportunities for them so that they have the ability to embody and to see what their unique path to leadership might be. So yeah, that so may be um, you know they want to pursue something in the arts and media or they want to pursue something through policy, but whatever it is, I try to give them a a direct embodied experience where they can see that their their desires matter, and that recovery should be built around their desires and their pleasure, that there's nothing more revolutionary coming out of trauma to center your life and your own pleasure and your own desire mm,
0: so well said. Um, We have to go to a quick break. Before we do, will you tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and your work?
1: I have uh, a couple of spaces where you can follow me. BrookeAxtell.com is my website. And then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And SheIsRising.org and SheIsRising on Facebook is also a good spot.
0: Awesome. So we've been talking with Brooke Axtell about women empowering women after sex trafficking more when we get back. Stay tuned. your personal power and unlock your superpowers. If you're ready to use your superpowers to change the world, then join the superpower net today. Visit superpowerexperts.com slash the net to learn more. All right, we are back. Um, So I want to talk a little bit because I actually, it was only a few years ago, believe it or not, that I even realized that here in the States, we have Sex trafficking going on. Um, I didn't. I didn't know that that was happening here. When I when I heard the word, I would you know I would think about you know like India or Thailand or you know sort of these like more quote unquote traditional places where you would think that something like that you know would occur. And, and we don't think in our developed you know civilized Western society that this is happening, and yet it's happening, and it's it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, and maybe it's just because my awareness of it has grown, it seems to me that in this country it's actually growing. Would you say that that's true?
1: I think it's difficult for us to measure because it has been an issue that's been rendered invisible for for many reasons, some cultural and some, some political. So I think as we're covering these stories more in mainstream media, as our uh, funding has been increasing to support more comprehensive research and data collection. I think, you know, we are seeing an increase in numbers, and I don't know that we yet have the ability to determine whether that's because now we're actually starting to measure the problem or whether the problem is more prevalent. But I I do think what I am seeing is that it has been an issue that has become far more visible and far more centered in mainstream media discourses, and I think One of the uh, common myths is is the one you highlighted, which is that this is only something that happens in developing nations because it's only an issue that is born out of extreme poverty. And although we know poverty is a vulnerability for exploitation, and obviously the financial motive is very strong for those who choose to exploit women and girls through sex trafficking, uh, the reality is, is that it happens everywhere because there is demand everywhere and that's sort of the the unfortunate reality that we have yet to truly face in our country is Mm -hmm. that it happens here because there's demand for it here and and that's very sobering because Mm -hmm. you know we would like to believe that this is only happening in uh places where people are coming out of communities of extreme poverty and that's where people are stepping in to exploit and of course That is a major risk factor, even here in states, generational poverty. But the reality is that exploiters look for any kind of vulnerability. And one of the greatest vulnerabilities is simply age. You know, youth are vulnerable inherently because of their age, because they uh, are not yet able to fully protect themselves. And we see in... Our country, approximately one out of six women will experience sexual assault and approximately one in four women will experience partner violence. And so when we look at what we already do know is happening here, I don't think that it's that difficult to then be, be able to grasp that this is simply monetized violence against women and girls. You know, we if we understand that sexual assault The sexual abuse of children and partner violence is rampant in our culture, it's not that hard to believe then that someone would monetize that and benefit from that financially. So it happens here because there's a demand for it here. And we see in about 83% of the sex trafficking cases in the U.S. that they involve U.S. citizens. That's another thing that I think is really surprising to people because they assume that the majority of cases would involve foreign nationals who are smuggled into the U.S. And although that does happen, uh, the vast majority of the cases that are documented by the Department of Justice have involved U.S. citizens.
0: And and how does that usually happen? People are kidnapped or is it like someone that they know? How does that usually occur?
1: Mm -hmm. The majority of the cases that I've worked on The trafficker steps in at a time of emotional and economic vulnerability. Usually the person is underage when the grooming process happens, and they typically present as a boyfriend or a caretaker. So I would say in about 70% of the cases that I have worked on, it resembles more of what we would think of as a dating violence relationship where there's a grooming process. The person is stepping in saying, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to look out for you. And then slowly, the psychological coercion, the violence, and threats of violence against the individual and their their families is occurring. And then they're exploited through the sex trade. So it's not necessarily the you know the highly organized criminal network. Although we do have gang related trafficking in the U.S., um, most of the cases that are occurring are you know often uh, young women who are experiencing some kind of vulnerability are. Our uh, youth in foster care, homeless and runaway youth are typically the most vulnerable. Uh, youth with drug and alcohol abuse issues, youth that have experienced some form of previous abuse. So they're they're looking for somebody who is going to take care of them and protect them. And these individuals are just very they're very good at presenting as you know someone. We call it selling the dream. It's that, that honeymoon phase that you often see in partner violence, where you know the person presents as you know I'm I'm going to I'm going to look out for you, you're special, I'm going to take care of you, and then slowly over time the the coercion sets in. So uh, kidnapping is very rare. It's really this uh, over time, this grooming and psychological coercion and violence, and the individual feels uh, completely trapped because. By the point that they realize what's actually happening they feel they have no recourse and no one that they can turn to for help. I think the reason why we have not seen uh, and identified how prevalent it is is because we we are looking for a type of trafficking uh, which is you know sort of the sensationalized Hollywood version which is you know the, the young woman who's kidnapped and taken to another country and the reality is: these are the girls in our community who are simply vulnerable, either emotionally or economically. They are, you know, essentially a lot of them have, you know, been already uh, involved in some aspect of our social service system. They may have been in juvenile detention facilities. They may have already been taken away from their their families. So typically there's already been abuse or trauma and it's really easy for somebody to step in and exploit them. Hmm. So
0: if someone is listening to this and they, they either think that they know someone that might be in this situation or they themselves are in this situation, what's your advice to them? How do you get out of that? Mm-hmm. before it, you know, say say it's like they're, they're hearing warning signs. They're not in the thick of it. They're hearing potential warning signs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of the red flags that I see that come up in both domestic violence, dating violence situations, and uh, a sex trafficker who fits this kind of profile, uh, you know, you see things like uh, isolation, turning the individual or... or Or isolating the individual from family and friends any support network they may have Uh, you see another red flag is uh, anger that's disproportionate to the situation so you know there's a small trigger and they go instead of having a frustration they have rage they often show signs of extreme jealousy and you know one Want to have increasing control of the person's life, their communication, where they can go, and what they do, even down to how they present themselves physically, the clothing they're wearing, the environments that they're in, and you see other things like untreated mental health and addiction issues, and there there are a lot of others. But I think you know if if a friend of yours or a loved one is is sharing. These types of red flags, I think, you know, whether you think there may be sexual exploitation or not, it's a really good time to then uh, begin to reflect back to the person that you, you know, deserve to be treated with respect, that these things aren't healthy or normal, um, that you would really encourage them to seek out counseling or support, to begin to offer resources and to keep the conversation open. I think one of the mistakes people make when they hear this type of red flag or they start to think their friend might be in an unhealthy relationship is that they criticize the person that they're dating or the person they're involved with. And usually what that does is it elicits a response that uh, is the, the person who's being victimized will, will be protective of the abuser or the potential abuser, they'll say, well, you we don't understand, you know, they've been through a lot or you don't know what it's like when it's just us or, you know, he has so many other amazing attributes, right? So it, it sort of sets up this dynamic where, you know, we mean well when we say, oh, you know, you deserve so much better than him, you know, he's this and that. And that criticism often evokes the opposite response to what we would desire, which would be the person would start to see, okay, maybe this person is problematic, maybe I should, mm-hmm distance myself. Usually what that does is it elicits a response of defensiveness and loyalty. So I think, you know, any way that you can reflect back to them, hey, I, you know, noticing these signs, these are things that are, I I don't think are healthy for you. I think you deserve to always be treated with respect. Would you be willing to talk to somebody about this without framing it as, you know, sort of attacking the individual? I think particularly if they're not ready to leave, that it can be something that will trigger, your loved one distancing from you instead of distancing from the abuser. And so I think we have to be really mindful of our language. And I think, you know, um, one model of communication that I really love is nonviolent communication. And the idea is basically just observe what the behavior is. I'm, I'm seeing that this is going on, share how it's impacting you. You know, I'm feeling Mm -hmm. sad or, you know, worried or concerned and then making a request. You know, I would love for you to consider this, Would you be willing to, speak to this therapist or maybe talk to somebody who's been through this before i want to make sure that you're taken care of and framing it in that way instead of it being about criticizing the the partner because often what that will do is that it will elicit a defensive response and alienate the individual and and make them feel that you know they have to somehow protect them so those are some red flags and some communication strategies that can be helpful. And I think, you know, if you're seeing those red flags in your own relationship, just being willing to be honest with yourself and to, to really see how you may be extending compassion to this person and not extending compassion to yourself. I find most yeah. women who get involved in abusive relationships have tremendous compassion for their abusers mm-hmm. but have very little compassion for themselves and their own experience. And so, you know, being willing to talk to a therapist or a coach or somebody that can really reflect back to you uh, and support you in identifying, okay, what are your needs and your desires and boundaries? And is this a relationship that's really supporting your, your growth and your, Self-love and compassion or is this something that is all about the other person and what they need? I I find that most women who stay in emotionally or physically abusive relationships are so centered in the experience of the toxic partner That they really lose their connection with their own needs and desires
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely Um, Now your organization is it a global organization is it based in one place physically how do people connect with with she is rising
1: so my core community is based here in austin texas but i travel all across the u.s and globally to work with partner agencies to host retreats, workshops, and healing circles for women and girls. So I work on this issue both in my own community and then through partner agencies. So if if someone is involved with a local nonprofit in, in their area or they're wanting to facilitate a retreat or a recovery or leadership workshop for survivors of gender violence or sex trafficking, their community, then I often will partner with them and share with them the tools that I have found to be most helpful for the women and girls that I work with here. So the the piece that is um, that is offered both in other states in the US and, and globally is essentially recovery education because I feel that if I can create safe space and and healing context for women and girls to explore what their long-term recovery can look like, then I can support them and then pursuing what will be most helpful for them in the future and really holding that, that vision that we were talking about a vision of, of healing and hope beyond the crisis phase.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the tools that you've found to be most effective?
1: Well, in, in my own recovery and in the uh, processing, particularly of PTSD, I think body centered therapies are really essential Mm -hmm. for me that Powerful modality was somatic experiencing. Mm-hmm. I also have seen EMDR to be really effective for treating PTSD and survivors. And I'm not a, uh, a therapist or a licensed practitioner in those areas. So I definitely refer people uh, to receive those, those types of treatments because I think that is really important and foundational. I've also found that contemplative practices like meditation and uh, restorative yoga those can be incredibly helpful in helping to regulate our nervous systems and Mm -hmm. to bring back into the present. You know, so many of the women and girls that I've worked with have complex developmental trauma. So they're also facing issues around attachment and relationships. So there's a modality that's called trust-based relational intervention that's been used a lot to help families who have adopted children to build a a healthy attachment with uh, their adopted children children. And then there's a growing body of research that is looking at the ways in which we can heal issues around attachment as adults. So uh, there are quite a few different modalities that I also recommend for people. I've been very focused on expressive arts therapies, creative writing, movement, visual art. So I don't have uh, licensing and expertise in all these areas. But what I do is based on what I've seen as helpful for my community, I will bring in the different practitioners and experts to make sure we have this integrated, holistic experience for them. And then uh, looking at the leadership opportunities, I like to bring in people that can give them tangible experiences, either being paid consultants, being um, uh, if they want opportunities in speaking in media, giving them training around that. So, for instance, that one retreat I brought in, a woman who oversees the the governor's task force for the state of Texas to end child sex trafficking in our state. And so she's coordinating the response for the governor's office. So I had her come in and share briefly what they're doing. And then I I told her that she could then ask the, the women in our community to be uh, essentially consultants for her project. And I told her that you know she could engage with them on a limited basis at the retreat if they wanted to share their expertise and then if she wanted to work with them on an ongoing basis that they could then sign up to be paid consultants for the state. So I try to find those tangible ways where they're not only getting the the therapeutic support but a concrete opportunity to see that they have, uh, have a voice and that they have valuable knowledge that not only could be shared in a meaningful way but they could be compensated financially. So if they want support around their writing or speaking, I look at how we can create paid opportunities for them to to consult or to to train. So if they're at that stage in their recovery, then you know re- you know referring them to be speakers or to engage in these types of ways because I think it's really important that their labor be compensated. So yeah. I really look look at that strategically and look at okay if if there are agencies that want to work with my community. How do we prepare them to, to do that? And then how do we make sure that the boundaries are really clear so they're not just being used for their just labor just and exploited. They're, they're yeah. actually they're actually being paid for their knowledge. And I found that that's really helpful and not just talking about a philosophy of leadership, but really giving them an experience of what it is to be a leader and to be compensated as a leader.
0: Yeah. That is so profoundly beautiful what you're what you're doing, because I think I think that that financial piece is is such a key part of true empowerment. You know, we can talk about empowerment all day long, but mm-hmm. if we're not actually putting our dollars behind it, it's, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is this a nonprofit organization that you've started or how does it operate?
1: Yes, we are a 501c3 uh nonprofit.
0: So people can go is there like a sheisrising.com that they can go to or they just find it on com? Yeah, there's um
1: sheisrising.org. org,
0: and, Okay.
1: Yeah, and I think the um the current setup was uh, it was was actually with our our previous fiscal sponsor which was Connector. And so for the first 2 years of uh, operations we were under their – uh, 501c3 umbrella. And I felt like that would be a really great pr- place to start because they focus on projects internationally that elevate the status of women and girls. And I wanted as a new project to have the, both the, the structural support and the oversight. And then we recently transitioned in our, our, into our own 501c3 status. And I don't actually think that the um, the website uh, reflects that yet. I need to update okay. that. So if you <laughs> I- go to the website and, and donate, it would actually go through go through connector uh but it still comes to us so in uh the near future that will all that information will be updated and of course they can email me through brookexdell.com or message me online if they're interested in uh, sponsorship opportunity and we can talk more about that
0: beautiful yeah so any of our listeners if you could just email brooke um brookexdell.com mm-hmm and tell her you want to donate to the amazing work that she's doing what's your what's your big vision for this? Like how big do you want it to get? What do you see is possible?
1: Well right now, I have been transitioning into thinking about how I can equip more survivors as well as students, service providers, uh, agencies that are working on this issue from lawyers to judges, law enforcement. I've done a lot of uh, education and training in the space, and that's been a core part of the the mission because I believe that's how we ultimately shift culture. So one of the things I've been thinking about is how we can mobilize more people to create this massive cultural shift to not only educate Mm -hmm. on how to best serve survivors, but on the prevention side. So I have a couple projects that are in, in motion to that end because I can you know, I can serve hundreds of women or I can equip thousands of people to educate in prevention and to better yeah. serve survivors. So I have been focusing on that lately and there are a few different projects that I'm creating. One is going to be a uh, a survivor recovery app. I'm in partnership with a data scientist at Microsoft that is essentially helping me build this right now. So a survivor can create a specialized profile that will help them to access services anywhere they are for mm-hmm. long-term recovery when they need them in the moment. Uh, we're, I'm also helping to create a victim advocate certification program with some partner agencies so that we can better equip people to do this front lines work. And then a few other projects on the horizon are also toward this end of prevention and intervention and shifting culture through education because i i believe that there's so many compassionate socially conscious people that simply don't know what this issue looks like yeah. and how they can be a part of the solution and i feel like if i can help mobilize more people to do that then we can end this exploitation and so my long-term vision is not just to support survivors and becoming leaders but to equip our broader communities and being a part of the solution in in very tangible ways. And so I've been doing a lot more in the prevention space because I believe that if we can address sexual violence and partner violence prevention, that will also help us in the space of sex trafficking prevention as well. So looking at the ways in which the the perpetrators show up with similar red flags to dating violence and being able to teach youth uh, how to identify also the the red flags and to keep themselves safe
0: so whatever we can do for you over here at superpower experts just know that we have our hands at your back we have our um, you are welcome to use whatever resources we have Um, we are we are with you and if anyone is listening to this and wants to know how they can support can just reach out to Brooke visit her website I just, I have such deep, deep respect for you and for the work that you're doing. And I can't say thank you enough for all of us.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's my honor.
0: Absolutely. So to our listeners, we've been talking with Brooke Axtell um, about women empowering women after sex trafficking. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, go out and love yourself so that you can love the world more deeply. Many blessings. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today.